a listener note. This episode contains depictions of sexual violence in explicit language. Discretion is advised. FO1. It's the mid-afternoon on July 25th, 2008. George and Cindy Anthony are parking their car in the lot outside of the Orange County Jail. It's been a long summer, and they're here today to visit their daughter, Casey. She's been in jail since the 16th, when she was taken into custody for child neglect and providing false information to police officers after her daughter Kaylee went missing for 31 days and never reporting it to authorities. Today, the 22-year-old is calm. She's confident that she will leave the Orange County Jail soon, and for good. George and Cindy pull up chairs at one of the visiting stations. In front of them sits a large monitor, and not long after taking a seat, Casey appears on the screen. She's in a dark blue jumpsuit with shoulder-length hair and a weary look on her face. She picks up the phone to talk to her mother first, who informs Casey of the magnitude of her situation. Casey, you don't realize that the whole United States is looking for our Kaylee. I know that, Mom. Her cover's going to be on People Magazine in a few days. Okay. Everybody is looking for her. Oh, good. Everybody is looking for her. Are we going to be able to find her, do you think? I hope we can, Mom. Casey and Cindy talk for a little over 40 minutes. Then, George begins speaking with his daughter and reassures her. I want you to know, I want to take your pain away from you. So, you know, you can tell me anything. I know that, Dad. I miss you, sweetie. I know that. I miss you, too. I wish I could have been a better dad and better grandpa, you know? You've been a great dad and you've been the best grandfather. Don't for a second think otherwise. Well, you know, you, you and Mom have been the best grandparents. Kaylee's been so lucky. Kaylee okay, is well. so lucky to have both of you. You, I can't even put into words how glad I am that she's had both of you, and that she still has both of you. You know, it goes without saying. You know that our. Our house is Just under a month later, on August 14th, George and Cindy returned to the jail to speak with their daughter once again. But now, with formal charges of child neglect filed against her, Casey is in a much worse mood than she was when her parents first visited. The following audio from the Associated Press contains snippets from this visit that show Casey's adamant maintaining of her innocence. Hey, Mom. We're not doing well, Kate. None of us. Lee's been sick. Dad's... Dad's blown up at the media. Yeah, I heard. (laughs) Well, someone just said that Kaylee was dead this morning, that she drowned in the pool. That's the newest story out there. Surprise, surprise. We need to... We need to have... Something to go on. Mom, I don't have anything. I'm sorry. I've been here a month. I've been here a month today. Do you understand how I feel? 
Hold on, sweetheart. Settle down, baby. Nobody's letting me speak. You want me to talk? Then All right, give me I'll listen three to seconds to see Go, something. Sweetheart. I'm not in control over any of this because I don't know what the hell's going on. I don't know what's going on. My entire life has been taken from me. Everything has been taken from me. You don't understand. Everybody wants me to have answers. I don't have any answers because I don't know what's going on. I have no one to talk to except Jose when he comes. It's the only person that I can talk to right now because I can't even say anything to you guys besides telling you that I love you. I want Kaylee. Things like that. And that's not even getting put on the air, which it should be. It's everything else. Everything that I'm, I'm not saying. Again, that's all I could do was backtrack. I can't backtrack on anything. A month I've been removed from the situation. You don't, you guys are not understanding my side on this, and I'm sorry. Many say that this was a turning point for Casey Anthony. This visit is when she finally began to understand the severity of the situation and feel the heat from law enforcement. And three years later, at 25 years old, she will go on trial for the murder of her daughter Kaylee and find out if her innocence is also maintained by a jury. From F01 Media, I'm Brad Esch, and this is Casey. You can run on for a long time, run on for a long time, run on for a long time. Sooner or later, gotta cut you down. Sooner or later, gotta cut you down. On May 24th, 2011, the people finally got what they've been waiting for, the trial of Casey Anthony. In the months leading up to this day, videos had surfaced on the internet of protests in the Anthony's front yard, with people holding signs depicting Casey as a baby killer and a monster. Some of these videos even revealed George partaking in physical confrontations with protesters. You see, this trial's relationship with social media was the first of its kind. People were drawn from coast to coast into what was later known as a real-life soap opera. And today marks the beginning of the series finale. This is Episode 3, Sad and Tragic Accident. Going into the opening day of the trial, the feeling was that the defense team, led by an inexperienced Jose Baez, had its work cut out for them. In addition, the prosecution believed they had a sufficient amount of evidence to put Casey away for a long time. However, the prosecution knows they have to present that evidence the right way, or their argument could go downhill, and fast. The opening statements serve as a chance for each side to paint a picture for the jury of how the death of Kaylee Anthony really played out. The lead prosecutor, 
Assistant State Attorney Linda Burdick leads off with the goal of giving jurors a clear image of a young mother determined to rid herself of motherhood and return to her normal, party-centric life. Casey Anthony, Kaylee's mother, appeared to all outward observers to be what her parents thought she was. A loving mother working hard to provide support for her daughter. But as the evidence in this case and the investigation into the background of Casey Anthony will show, that was an illusion. Casey Anthony was not employed. Casey Anthony dressed in work clothes, had a universal ID, and went who knows where. Burdick is addressing every detail one by one, from the cause of death to the location of the remains to even Casey's behavior. She makes it crystal clear to the jury that there is only one possible explanation for Kaylee's death. She was murdered by her own mother. So when Casey Anthony appears on a surveillance video at the Blockbuster with her boyfriend, Tony Lazaro, on the night of June 16th of 2008 at 7.54 p.m., where is Kaylee Anthony? Once the state's two-hour-long opening monologue is complete, the first major question of the trial will now be answered. What will Jose Baez say is Kaylee's cause of death if she wasn't murdered by her mother? It's a tall task for the young attorney, as he will have to account for every detail, both big and small, in his explanation. But what he does come up with as cause of death shocks the prosecutors. On June 16, 2008, Casey was home with Kaylee, and so was her father. Early morning hours, the exact time is not known. It could have been early afternoon, early morning. Actually, it was the early morning hours. George Anthony approached Casey and started yelling at her. Where's Kaylee? Where's Kaylee? They began to search the house. They couldn't find her. This is a mock-up of the Anthony home, where you'll see they both came outside. Casey came around to the left of the house. George went that way towards the pool. They have an above-ground pool with a ladder. As soon as Casey came around this corner and went back, she saw George Anthony holding Kaylee in his arms. She immediately grabbed Kaylee and began to cry and cry and cry. And shortly thereafter, George began to yell at her, Look what you've done! Your mother will never forgive you and you will go to jail for child neglect for the rest of your freaking life. She cried and cried and asked for her father's help. And it was shortly thereafter that George did help. It's at this moment that Casey should have been stronger. Casey should have called 911. Casey should have done the right thing. And that's what she's guilty of. She's not guilty of murder. This is not a murder case. This is not a manslaughter case. This is a sad, tragic accident that snowballed out of control. 
her death was covered up. Baez tells the jury that the two-year-old's death was an accident. He informs them that on June 16th, 2008, Kaylee opened the sliding glass door into the Anthony family's backyard, climbed up the plastic poolside ladder someone else had forgotten to put away, and jumped into the pool, eventually drowning. To address the location of the remains, Baez says that Casey's father, George, attempted to dispose of the body to save Casey from suspicion. So, he wrapped Kaylee in her favorite blanket, one in which pieces of it were found near the remains, placed in her trash bag, and dumped her in the wooded area behind the home. But there's still one major piece of the puzzle Baez has to fill in. Casey's behavior in response to her daughter's disappearance and the defense's reasoning for her pattern of lying and avoiding responsibility leaves Jaws on the floor. Casey was raised to lie. This child, who at eight years old, learned to lie immediately. She could be 13 years old, have her father's penis in her mouth, and then go to school and play with the other kids as if nothing ever happened. The allegation against Casey's father for sexual abuse was completely unexpected. Years after the trial, Prosecutor Jeff Ashton would recall Baez's opening statement as being one that, quote, turned everything we thought about this case on its head. Others described the opening statement as being full of allegations that were, quote, completely out of left field. With the opening arguments concluded, it's now time for witness testimonies. The first person called to the stand by the prosecution is George Anthony himself. He bounds his way to the stand running his hand through his white hair. He's tall with a thicker build and sports a weary look on his face. The state begins by asking him about his background and basic information, including where he's from, where he began his career in law enforcement, and how he met his current wife, Cindy. In addition, he informs the court about when his career as a police officer ended and he moved into a family business. Once the background questions are out of the way, Prosecutor Jeff Ashton begins asking about his history and relationship with his daughter, Casey, including when he first found out she was pregnant. How did you learn that she was pregnant? Uh, My uh, daughter and my wife sat me down in our living room and uh, said they had something to tell me. And first hearing about it, Extremely excited. Extremely excited to be a grandfather, to see my daughter be a mother, but also concerns about you know, how she's going to raise a child because she's, she's a single mom. I, I never really thought too much about who the father could be. That was a discussion I wanted to have maybe a little bit later. I wanted my daughter first to be happy, to get through the pregnancy fine, to enjoy that special time of becoming a mother that I thought was very important. Next, he's asked about the last time he ever saw his granddaughter. He recalls the day in great detail. That is something that is uh, forever in my mind that I can't forget that day because that's the last day that I saw Kayla and Casey together. I remember the time because it was a commercial break on TV, and I remember Kaylee coming out from Casey's room um, dressed in a nice little pink top. She had her uh, blue jeans, little uh, shorts on. Her white sandals, pink socks, her um, white sunglasses, her hair pulled back, and she had a little backpack on. And I said, where are you going? And she says, going with Mommy. And I said, oh, really? I said, where are you going? 
I'm going to see Zanny. And I said, really great. You know, I'm just excited. I'm just knowing that she's happy and I can see excitement in her. And and within a few minutes, Casey comes out and, you know, dressed. She said, Dad, we're going to work. I'll, I might be home late or I'll let you guys know. I might be staying over. Staying over where? Uh, she, she said, you know, probably Zanny's house because Zanny was, I guess, lived somewhere close by or she didn't want to come home too late. And plus Kaylee would be in bed between 8.30, probably 9 o'clock. And I said, okay, it's something that happened every once in a while. It wasn't a, an occurrence that occurred. I think it could be every once in a great while she would stay with a friend or stay at Zanny's house or something. You told us about the conversation with Kaylee and with Casey. What happened? I, I went out. I, I like generally like I did when I could see them going off to when seeing Casey going off to work and walking out with, with Kaylee and seeing Kaylee getting placed in the car, getting buckled in her car seat. Just just a normal type stuff and I did and I'd blow her a kiss and say, Jody, I'll see you later and she'd blow a kiss back and give Casey a hug. Following George's answer, Ashton asked him directly if he ever sexually assaulted Casey. He responds firmly, No. Following the prosecution's line of questioning, Baez stands from his seat and makes his way to the front of the witness stand to begin the questioning from the defense. During this time, George states that he did not detect the smell of human remains from Casey's Pontiac Sunfire on the 24th, but that he did smell something similar to human remains on the 15th. In addition, Baez presses him on whether or not Kaylee had, quote, relatively easy access to exit the house, which George answered, yes. She did. George is the only witness to testify on the first day of the trial. The following day, multiple friends of Casey's are called to the stand to describe her behavior around the time of her two-year-old's disappearance. The first of them being Cameron Campana, who lived with Casey's boyfriend at the time, Anthony Lazaro. Campana testifies that Casey had told him about working at Universal as an event coordinator. He also confirms that she began living with him and Lazaro in their apartment in June of 2007. Then the prosecutor asks him about Kaylee appearing at the apartment with Casey. When she started living with you, did you ever see Kaylee again? Um, I believe once, and I, I can't be 100% positive about that. Did she ever tell you during the subsequent weeks where Kaylee was? Um, we have asked, and... Uh, one time she said that she was going to Universal with the nanny. Then another time was the nanny was taking her to Cocoa Beach for a friend's uh, son's birthday party. To finish his time on the stand, Campana is asked whether or not Casey ever indicated to him that her daughter was missing. During the time period that she was living with you, did she ever tell you that her daughter was missing? No. Did she ever tell you that her daughter had been kidnapped? No. Did she ever tell you that while you were out in classes, she was out looking for her daughter? No. Did she at any time ever ask you for any help in trying to find her daughter? No. The next five witnesses echo Campana's statements and give their own accounts of Casey's nonchalant behavior at the time of Kaylee's disappearance, with one of them even describing her as a, quote, fun party girl. The final witness of the day called by the prosecution is Anthony Lazaro. Lazaro is tall with very short hair and a body that fills out his button-up shirt. During his time on the stand, he recalls Casey never mentioning Kaylee's disappearance and that her disposition never altered at any point during the June and July months of 2008. 
However, he states that when him and Casey would go to the Anthony family's above-ground pool with Kaylee, the young mother would, quote, discipline her daughter like any mother would do. And when Baez questions Lazaro, he states that Casey would tell him, quote, very personal secrets. When Baez questions if any of these secrets were about George's molestation of his daughter, Judge Belvin Perry cuts off the questioning immediately. Throughout the testimony, the prosecution enters into evidence photos of Casey's partying during the time Kaylee was missing. Through the first two days of the trial, the young defense attorney, Jose Baez, has held his ground impressively, much better than most expected. On day three, more friends of Casey's testify. One of these witnesses is Ricardo Morales, another former boyfriend of Casey's. He states that on the day Cindy Anthony, Casey's mother, made the 911 call to report Kaylee missing, Casey picked him up from the airport in her, quote, usual manner, happy, smiling, as if nothing was wrong at all. Day four consists of testimonies from employees of different stores and businesses in the area to establish both Casey's and her vehicle's whereabouts the days following her daughter's disappearance. In addition, George Anthony takes the stand again to be asked about the smell of human decomposition in the vehicle. Then, on day six of the trial, Cindy Anthony takes the stand for the first time. She fixes her shiny blonde hair and leans onto the table in front of her. She recounts the night she found out Kaylee was missing. And um, she told me that she would take me to see um, Kaylee, so we started to drive. And Did she tell you to go anywhere specific? We started driving around, and then Casey started making excuses why it would not be a good idea for me to go see Kaylee, and I was getting very, very frustrated. And I was asking her questions about why the car was at the tow company. And Did you get answers? No, I didn't. We drove around for quite some time, and at one point she asked me to take her back to Tony's, and I told her she wasn't going anywhere until I got the answers. And um, I was driving closer towards our home because since I wasn't getting a specific location where to pick up Kaylee, I just figured I might as well head home. And... As I was going down Pershing, I noted the um, the Orlando police station that was on Pershing, and I told her that if she wasn't going to give me the answers, that I was going to get someone to help me get them. All right. So at this point, you pulled into uh, a substation for the Orlando Police Department on Pershing? Yes, ma'am. And I pulled up to the door and um, started to get out of the car and realized that they closed at 5 p.m. and it was, it was way after 5. So I just got back in the car and told Casey that this was her last chance to tell me what was going on. And she was trying to explain to me that she... We talked about issues that we were having, and we were kind of arguing a little bit in the car, and I wasn't getting the answers that I wanted, so I dialed 911 from the car. 
At the conclusion of the state's questioning of Cindy, they enter her original 911 calls into evidence. Then, Baez cross-examines, and at the midway point of the questioning, he asks her to recall the last moment she saw her granddaughter alive, emphasizing whether or not she removed the stepladder for the pool from the side of it. That you, the two of you got out of the pool? Yes, it was getting, the sun was, you know, it was getting later in the evening, and it, it was getting kind of chilly in the pool, and we had been in the pool for at least an hour, hour and a half. It was probably about 7 o'clock, 7.30. And I know you testified that you took the ladder down after you were done. Yes, I recall taking the ladder down. Are you 100% certain of that? As certain as I can be. I'm not sure if anybody's ever 100% certain of anything, but I do recall taking the ladder down. So as much as I can remember from the events, yes, I took the ladder down. Following that question, Baez asked Cindy about the 911 call in which she described Casey's sunfire smelling like there's a dead body inside. 14 minutes after that, he questioned Cindy about her quote, financial interest in the trial. After a few more minor inquiries, Baez returns to his seat. The prosecution then calls to the stand Amy Huizenga, Casey's best friend, to answer questions regarding Casey's relationship with her mother especially in regard to Kaylee. And after the first six long days of what would later become known as the trial of the century, one fact stands out from the rest. Jose Baez has earned his keep, and this trial is completely up for grabs. June 4th, day 10 of the trial. FBI forensic evidence examiner Karen Lowe is at the witness stand after being called upon by the prosecution. She is of average height with long brown hair and a round face. She takes a seat with her hands in her lap. Today, she is going to be asked about the strands of hair found in the trunk of Casey's vehicle. About 20 minutes into Lowe's testimony, an easel is set up in front of the jury. Placed on the easel is a large board that displays microscopic images of what is believed to be Kaylee Anthony's hair from the trunk of Casey's Pontiac Sunfire. Lowe explains her findings for the court. The top portion of the poster shows hairs in two of the three growth stages. Uh, there are a total of three growth stages, antigen, catagen, and telogen. Antigen is the active growth stage, which is depicted here. Uh, there's pigment production all the way through, and you can see that the, the root portion of the hair is uh, distorted. Uh, this hair was forcibly removed, so uh, it was still actively growing. Uh, the cuticle layer, which is the outer portion of the hair, uh, it's a layer of scales which overlap kind of like fish scales. Um, within the follicle, there's also a cuticle layer as part of the internal root sheath, and that the, the scales of the two uh, cuticles are in opposite directions, which lock the hair in place. Let me so, stop you for a second. You yes. just used a word I don't think any of us know. Internal root, root sheath. Is there any way you can demonstrate on that what you mean it's, by that? It's within, the, within your scalp. That's okay. what keeps the hair um, in, in your scalp. Okay. Uh, so the outer portion of the hair, the cuticle, interacts with the um, cuticle layer of the internal root sheath to keep a hair in place. So if you've pulled out a hair and it hurts, that's why. 
After the prosecution submits a countless number of pieces of evidence, Baez begins his questioning of the credibility of hair examination. People Actually, still have hair. People still have hair, but hairs can change over time. But what you learn about the science has changed drastically over the years. Um, we've, obviously, the instruments have gotten better, um, and the way we document things is, is different, but uh, hair examinations come down to comparative biology, comparing characteristics in one thing to char characteristics in another, and really that hasn't changed. What has changed is the FBI's position on microscopic hair analysis in, as it relates to identifying individuals, has it not? Uh, hair exams have never been a means of positive identification. Following this line of questioning, Lowe is excused from the stand. Her testimony is a victory for the prosecution, but Baez has some experts of his own. And when it becomes the defense's turn to call witnesses, he pulls no punches. From days 10 to 18, the prosecution calls expert witness after expert witness to drive their case home to the jury. But with each expert comes a strong cross-examination from Baez. For example, on June 9th, a software analyst testifies that the Anthony Home Computer searched for the term chloroform 84 times. However, he also informs the court under heat from Baez that there's no way to tell whose account made those searches. On June 10th, Baez forces a medical examiner to admit that while she had ruled Kaylee's death a homicide, she still has no idea what the cause of death really was. And while he wasn't creating conclusions of his own, Baez was doing exactly what a defense attorney has to do, create reasonable doubt. It's the 20th day of the trial, June 16th. Today, the defense is scheduled to call their first witnesses. As the jurors and spectators settle into their seats for another long day in the Orlando courthouse, Baez calls his first witness the same crime scene investigator that was called by the state earlier in the trial. This theme continues throughout the day, with Baez calling up state witnesses to continue their testimony. It proves to be a smart move by the young attorney. The original crime scene investigator says no blood or incriminating stains were found in Casey's car or on her clothing. An FBI analyst states that no DNA evidence was found in the car or at the crime scene. One by one, he punctures the prosecution's seemingly airtight case. The following day, Baez calls forensic entomology consultant Timothy Huntington to the stand. Huntington is tall and skinny with thin glasses and short hair. He's here today to testify that if Kaylee's body was ever in the trunk of Casey's car, then there should have been, quote, hundreds or thousands of blowflies along with it. A large notepad on an easel is placed in front of the jury as Huntington explains. Go through what's called complete metamorphosis. You've all learned this in second grade or kindergarten or something. Most people forget about it. Um, but complete metamorphosis is analogous to the butterflies. Okay? If you know anything about butterflies or, or similar insects, they start out as eggs. Those eggs hatch out into larvae, which in the case of flies, we call them maggots. They're really just eating flies. The maggots start out small, same way that a butterfly starts out, a caterpillar starts out small, and they eat, and that's their sole function, they eat. Um, as this, this first stage larva After Huntington provides the jury with background on the subject matter, 
Baez begins asking him about the flies' relationship with decomposing bodies. And around 50 minutes into the testimony, Huntington is asked about how these creatures behave in the trunk of a vehicle that has a decomposing body inside. In response, he says that in Florida's summer climate, a decomposing body inside the barrier of a car's trunk should have been accompanied by thousands of blowflies. With Huntington's testimony, the defense believes they have sufficiently created reasonable doubt through scientific evidence about whether or not Kaylee was ever even in the trunk of Casey's Pontiac Sunfire. The next day, Baez calls Dr. Werner Spitz to the stand. In his testimony, he raises questions about the autopsy of Kaylee's remains, including why the school was never opened. He also states that there was never any clear evidence that a homicide had even occurred. The next three days come and go with the defense focused solely on discrediting the prosecution's expert witnesses. From FBI analysts to university professors, they are on a mission not to prove Casey's innocence, but to prove that there is no way to be 100% certain that she did commit the murder of her daughter. It's June 23rd, day 26 of the trial. The fourth witness of the day to be called to the stand by the defense is Cindy Anthony. She makes her way to the front of the small courtroom in a tight purple dress with long diamond necklaces dangling down her chest. She's sworn in, then takes her seat. Baez is calling up his client's mother for a myriad of reasons. The first being the Google searches for chloroform on the Anthony family's home computer. Good afternoon, Mrs. Anthony. Good afternoon. Do you recall in March of 2008, you doing any types of searches for any items that might include chloroform? Yes. Next, Baez shows her pictures of the inside of Casey's Pontiac Sunfire's trunk. He shows her a close-up image of a stain on the liner and asks a revealing question. Um, there's a faint stain. Yes, I see it. Okay. And uh, have you seen that stain before? Yes. Where? When we bought the car. Following this exchange, Baez excuses himself and the state elects to cross-examine Cindy. Their reason for doing so is to make it clear that it is possible for Cindy's work record to show that she was at work during a time period in which she was actually at home. This, as a result, serves as a blow to the prosecution's argument that Casey was the only person who could have possibly made the search for chloroform. The next day, Cindy is once again called by the defense to the stand. Baez still has questions he wants answered, and today he plans on getting a little more personal with Casey's mother. Around five minutes in, Baez shows a short video to the court to confirm Kaylee's short size in comparison to those found with her remains. In the video, Casey is laying flat on her back with Kaylee being lifted into the air by her young mother. With Kaylee happy and smiling big at the side of the camera, it's a sobering reminder of how things used to be for the Anthony family, as the entire courtroom has a simultaneous, how did we get here moment. Cindy has tears streaming down her face as she explains how she can recall the date the video was captured. I watched that video hundreds of times since I haven't seen Kaylee in 2008 and there's still pictures of me holding Kaylee on the same day 
and I recall the skirt. It was like a Hawaiian print, and even though I still have the skirt, I hadn't worn it. After, I don't recall wearing it after that. It was kind of like not popular after that. Baez presses on, showing Cindy photos of the ladder attached to the side of the family's above-ground pool and asking how it would be removed and stowed away. Then, he provides her with a photo of Kaylee and herself walking up the ladder out of the pool. At this point, Cindy is sobbing. Picture after picture, the defense reinforces their case that Kaylee was fully able to climb the ladder and enter the pool by herself. And for the final photo... Baez puts the exclamation point on his argument. Can you tell the ladies and gentlemen of the jury what that photograph depicts? It's a picture of Kaylee at the sliding glass door um, from the living room going into our um, screen patio. Wow. Um, does Kaylee appear to be much bigger in that photograph? Yes. It's day 30 of the trial, and George Anthony is back on the stand. He's in a yellow button-up shirt with black dress pants and his white hair slicked back. Earlier in the trial, a woman by the name of Crystal Holloway testified before the court. Holloway was a volunteer at command centers. However, the reason she was called to the stand was to detail her alleged intimate relationship with Casey's father, including some revelations she claimed he made to her. Uh, Miss Holloway, did there ever come an occasion where you had a heart-to-heart conversation with George Anthony as to what happened to his granddaughter? Yes. Okay. Tell the ladies and gentlemen of the jury what you were doing and, and how that all transpired. Um, the particular night that you're referring to? Yes. Uh, he was sitting on my couch, and I was sitting on the floor, and... Um, he had told me, he had said it was an accident that snowballed out of control, but I was in shock, and by the time I looked up, his eyes were filled like with tears, and I didn't elaborate. I didn't ask him anything further. And now, Baez is wasting no time in pressing George on the issue. And how well do you know her? Uh, just... Someone who volunteered at our sites, uh, sometime maybe considered her a friend or someone who was going to be uh, helping find our granddaughter. And how would she have gone about that? Oh, by working at our command center. Someone come in with a tip or information that could help us find Kaylee. And is it your testimony that she was just another volunteer? Absolutely, just another volunteer. To sum it all up, George makes it clear for Baez. Did you, prior to finding your granddaughter, tell Crystal Holloway or River Cruz that Kaylee's death was an accident that snowballed out of control? Well, sir, to clarify your question, I never found my granddaughter. To this day, I've never found her. Throughout the testimony, George adamantly maintains that he did not have an affair with Crystal Holloway, 
and that he played no role in Kaylee's disappearance or death. However, he does admit that he purchased a gun with the intention of confronting Casey's friends concerning the whereabouts of his granddaughter. In addition, Cindy took the stand once again, testifying that she did not send the private search team to the area where Kaylee's remains were found, despite allegations. Following that testimony, Roy Cronk, the meter reader who found the remains, testified about his actions after finding the bones. The next day, the same three people are called upon once again. This time, Cindy tells the court about Casey's response to the report that Kaylee was believed to be dead. George details the night in which he wrote a suicide note in a hotel room miles away from his home, and Cronk answers questions about what exactly he did and who he spoke to after discovering Kaylee's remains. Up to this point in the trial, excluding the first day of opening statements, Casey has remained stone-faced. If she has felt any emotion at any point in the proceedings, she hasn't portrayed it. And now, for the first time in the trial, she speaks to the court and drops a bombshell on the jury. I have some questions I need to ask of your client. Yes, sir. Ms. Anthony, do you understand, uh, first of all, is it your decision not to testify based upon... uh, consultation with your counsel yes sir you understand that your decision to testify or not testify is solely your decision and your decision alone yes sir and it is your decision not to testify yes sir have you had ample time to discuss this matter with your attorneys that is the pros and cons of testifying or not testifying Yes, sir. And has anyone used any force or pressure uh, in making you uh, arrive at that decision? No, sir. And that decision uh, is your decision freely and voluntarily? Yes, sir. Okay. Thank you, ma'am. And with that, the defense rests, and it's now time for the closing statements. This is where Baez has to drive his argument home with the help of expert witness testimonies and evidence, or lack thereof. He's made a strong showing up to this point and has exceeded expectations. But now, it's time for him to make a name for himself and do what Casey has entrusted him to do. Close the deal and let the 25-year-old walk free. That's on the next and final episode of Casey. You can run on for a long time, run on for a long time, run on for a long time. Sooner or later, gotta cut you down. Sooner or later, gotta cut you down. From F01 Media, this was part three of four of the story of how Casey Anthony became the most hated woman in America. A note about the information you heard in this episode. 
It was all based on our best research. And if you would like to learn more about this story, we recommend Casey Anthony, an American murder mystery from Investigation Discovery. You can listen and subscribe to Casey at fo1.media or on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite shows. For updates, follow FO1 Media on Twitter and Facebook. All you have to do is search FO1 Media. And if you enjoyed this episode, leave us a five-star rating and review. It's the best way to help other listeners find this series. Thank you for streaming. This episode was edited and executive produced by me, Brett Esch, written and researched by myself and Carmen Morales for FO1 Media. FO1.